I invite you to Matthew 18, Matthew 18 in your Bibles. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one to you. And keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. We'll be looking at a number of passages of Scripture today. Matthew 18 will be one of those later in our message. In 2018, I taught a series called You've Got Questions and God Has Answers. And One of the questions we answered was this. Isn't the church just a man-made institution? And for that, I said this. The role of the church in one's spiritual life is a matter of considerable discussion and misunderstanding. One extreme sees the church as necessary for salvation. For example, Pope Boniface VIII wrote in the year 1302, quote, Outside the church, there is no salvation. More recently, the Roman Catholic Church has sought to clarify this in their 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church, which restated that statement. There is no, outside the church, there is no salvation. It restated it as, quote, How are we to understand this affirmation? often repeated by the church fathers. Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through Christ the church, which is his body. And then explaining the last part of that statement, that salvation comes through the church, the leading Catholic apologetics organization called Catholic Answers says this, since the sacraments are the ordinary means through which Christ offers the grace necessary for salvation, and the Catholic Church that Christ established is the ordinary minister of those sacraments, it's appropriate to state that salvation comes through the church. In layman's terms, this means that since, according to Roman Catholicism, Mass and the other sacraments are required for forgiveness of sins, and since one can only receive those through the Catholic Church administered by a priest of the church, then unless one dies in the good graces of that church, he will not go to heaven. So that's one extreme regarding the church. It's the dispenser of grace, and it holds the keys to your eternal destiny. But there's another error in the opposite direction. In part, as a reaction to the extreme that sees the church as the vehicle through which salvation is achieved, many, in turn, see no value or necessity for the church at all. For instance, in his book, Exit Interviews, William Hendricks estimates that, quote, 53,000 people leave churches every week and never come back. Hendricks' own comments regarding this trend are, are quite revealing. He says that these, what he calls, backdoor believers have become quite resourceful at finding ways to meet God apart from the local church, and that those leaving the church behind have often found, quote, a better way. He notes that quite often they describe themselves as moving closer to God, but further away from the church. And what is his message to these church dropouts? He says, I don't blame you for walking out. This is similar to the popular thinking that says, I'm spiritual but not religious. You may hear that a lot. Surveys say that the fastest growing category of religious observance is none, N-O-N-E. 
So when asked about religious affiliation, more young people are checking the none box. So clearly we need to be reminded from God's word regarding the importance of the church to the mission that he is carrying out in his world. As we begin this new year, we're devoting the first few weeks to reminding ourselves of the centrality of the church to Christ's mission and each of our role within it. So two weeks ago, we saw that the Bible commends planning and the administration of our plans in God's church in order to carry out his mission. And I read at that time our church's 10-year plan, which has seven years left to go on it. And you can get a copy of that if you weren't here at the desk that's out in the lobby. And I noted that in order to accomplish these ambitious but God-honoring plans, it's going to require all of God's people contributing their gifts and abilities to it. Then last week, Pastor Larry did an excellent job of reminding us of our church's mission statement and how that should shape our lives as we strive together to move the Lord's work forward. Today, we continue this mini-series called Body Life 2020 Vision. We're going to see the need for committing ourselves to one another in membership and committing ourselves to God in the use of the gifts that he's given to us. In a few weeks, we'll resume our series in the book of Revelation. But for these opening weeks in 2020, we're focusing ourselves upon this to set the tone for the rest of this year. It's always a dilemma to, at the beginning of the year, which of course is in January, to have these kind of state of the church addresses because you never know what the weather is going to be in January. And so we have these weeks to emphasize the need for us to be together in the mission during weeks when it's the hardest for us to actually be together to hear about the necessity of being together. And so you may next week and the week after that hear me repeat some of what I say today because I really want everybody who's associated with our church to hear these messages in these opening weeks of 2020. Let's pray now and ask God to help us. Father, here we are. We thank you that we're here. The weather notwithstanding, you have a divine appointment for me to be here, for these dear folks to be here in your presence, to hear from your word what's important to you. Your church is of utmost importance to you, And it is the vehicle through which you're accomplishing your will, your work in this age. And so help us to see that. Help us to be attentive to these truths from your word. And then having heard them, help us to heed them. To do what is necessary in light of what you say about your church and our role within it. Some hearts today, Lord, need to be changed in this regard. Thinking needs to be changed with regard to the priority of your church. And so we ask you to do what only you can do. Use me as your instrument into the thinking and into the choices of those that you have called to be here today. So that you will be honored by all of us in the work of your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Inserted in your program as every week, is an outline of the message. So I encourage you to take that out. I say, first of all, the church is comprised of God's people. That is, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a member of 
and a participant in God's church. In Scripture, church is not something you simply attend. Church is the community of faith that God has called together to carry out his work. So if you're here this morning and you believe that I'm part of the church as God describes it in the Bible, simply because I attend, then you're making a huge mistake. And the truth is, some of us do that. We show up. And we leave. And there's no participation and no involvement in the lives of the people with whom we attend on Sunday morning. All of which is contrary to what God says in his word about the family of God that is the church. So when I said in the prayer that some need to be changed today, changed in the way we think, changed in the priorities that we commit our lives to, I'm talking about, among other things, that. The false idea that church is something you attend as opposed to the community of faith that God has called together to carry out his work in a particular place at a particular time. That's what his church is. It's comprised of God's people who have come together to commit to do that. So if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a member of and a participant in God's church. Now that notion of the necessity of church membership has fallen on very hard times. And that's because it's in keeping with the erroneous mindset I mentioned at the beginning that it's okay to pursue your relationship with God apart from involvement in his church. Your salvation isn't because of the church. That's certainly true. But your Christian walk, your Christian life is to be indispensably linked to the church and the work that you're called, among others, to carry out in and through it. So there are many who see no importance to the church other than attending. And so many attend, but never join. Join, yikes. Commitment, ick. So I want to spend some time talking about the necessity of membership. Now, to be fair, part of the reason that many object to membership is because they don't think they see it in Scripture. And there's a sense in which that's true that I'm going to talk about in a bit. But for now, let's see that the concept of membership is, in fact, taught throughout the Bible. So I'm asking you as best you can with your mental faculties in place in the morning, with a guy talking who's not particularly flamboyant, to still try to stay awake and focus because this is important. The Bible, in fact, teaches the concept of of membership throughout. And that's why I say in your outline the function of membership 
is biblical. That is, the fact of membership, the necessity of membership, is taught in the Bible, and it is so taught in a number of ways. For example, one passage speaks of the whole church coming together. Now, when it refers to the whole church, then, to whom does that refer? The whole church. The only realistic answer is the church's members. The whole church came together. Who is the whole church? It's the church's members. That's why New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett translates this verse as, quote, the whole church assembling together and all its members. I mean, imagine the leaders of the Corinthian church to whom of whom that is said. Imagine the leaders of the Corinthian church walking into a church wide meeting. How could they have known when the whole church was together without knowing who was a member and who wasn't? I don't know everybody in this room. But I do know who's part of this church. And that's a subset of the number of people in this room. Some are members and some are attenders. So how could they have known who was the whole church without knowing who was a member and who wasn't? It implies that they had a verifiable membership. In addition, the instructions for pastoral oversight and spiritual leadership make sense only in the context of there actually being membership. The Bible uses several terms to refer to the office of pastor. And these are interchangeable terms. Pastor, overseer is another one. And the Bible says this, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. But that raises the question, what or whom it is that we're to oversee? How is it that pastors can provide spiritual oversight if we don't know exactly those for whom we're responsible? So for whom am I and our other three pastors responsible to give spiritual oversight here? It's the members. The same chapter that speaks of the oversight responsibility of pastors says this, of the qualifications for those pastors. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the church of God? Now notice this. The local church is compared to a family and no one is a casual member of a family. You know who's in and who's not. Instead, membership in a family is a very definite thing. That's why in 1 Timothy 3.15, that we'll see later, the Bible, the church is called God's household, God's family. Further, the Bible says, keep watch over yourselves to the elders in the church at Ephesus. It says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So how can we fulfill our responsibility as under shepherds to all the flock unless we know who's part of the flock and who's not? You see, friends, not everybody who wanders in on a Sunday morning and everybody is welcome to wander in. 
But not everybody who wanders in is my spiritual responsibility. Did you know that? The flock is the people who are the members of this church. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Your leaders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So for whom will our church's leadership give an account? Everybody who just wanders in and out? No, it has to be the members of the church for whom we are answerable. How can we be responsible for someone until we know that he or she is committed to our care? The Bible's instructions for pastoral oversight and spiritual leadership can best be obeyed when there's a well-defined church membership. And that's what they had in the first century church. And in addition to those reasons, the metaphors that are used to describe local churches in the New Testament, a flock, a body, a household, they make sense only in the context of membership. A flock of sheep is not a random collection of ewes, rams, and lambs. Shepherds know their flocks. They know which sheep are those to care for and which are not. Sheep belong to specific flocks. This is also the way it should be for God's spiritual sheep. The same analogy is true for the human body. Your body is not a casual collection of loosely related parts. You don't keep your fingers in your pocket until you need them. They're joined. They're members of the body. The local body of Christ should be like this as well. Those joined to Christ who are members of his body should express that relationship through a visible membership. And then there's the household metaphor. In a household, in a family, you're either a member or you're not. So if you're part of the family of God, you should show it by joining a local expression of God's family. One pastor says of these metaphors, flock and a body and a family. God has given us several pictures of the church, not one. This is not just to emphasize and prove the point by repetition, but also to say different things about what it means to be a member of a church. To be part of a body means to belong to a living, functioning, serving, witnessing community. To be a sheep in the flock means belonging to a community dependent on him for food and protection and direction. To be a member of a family is to belong to a community bound by a common fatherhood. Put together, you have the main functions of an individual Christian. Evidently, we are meant to fulfill these, not on our own, but together in the church. This gives us an answer to the question, why should I join, why we should join a church? And then in addition to all of that, the instructions that the Bible gives for church discipline make sense only in the context Excuse me, of membership. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus taught about that, church discipline. Beginning in verse 15, he says that if your brother has or sister has something against you, go to them, show them their fault just between the two of 
you. And if he or she listens, you have won your brother over. But if they will not listen, then you tell it to two or three others. You bring two or three others along so that Jesus says in that passage, and you'll notice that this is in quotations, so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. Now, just as an aside, quickly, what Jesus is quoting there, the reason it's in quotes is because he's quoting something from the first part of your Bible. In particular, Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 19, 15. Where the rules for evidence in a legal proceeding are given in the law. And it was said there that no one can be convicted of a crime unless there are two or three witnesses. And so if there aren't two or three witnesses to the supposed offense that the person has committed against you, then you're going to need to leave it with God. Two or three witnesses. But then, if he will not hear them, Jesus goes on to say, tell it to the church. And then Jesus says, if he will not hear the church, you are to treat him or her as a heathen and a tax collector, a pagan and a tax collector. That is, you're to treat that person as if their profession of faith is not real. They're an unbeliever. All right, that's what Jesus says. You see that. And what is supposed to happen then in that case is Jesus is saying that a professing Christian who is unrepentant in their sin is to be dealt with by removal from the church. And you find this elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is in unrepentant sin. Notice, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, I want you to think about this. Isn't it the case that you cannot expel someone who's not first in? So the biblical requirement for church discipline assumes church membership. You can't remove somebody who's not first in. The first century church had a defined membership. And when someone who was part of that membership shows themselves to be in unrepentant sin, then they were to be dealt with by removing them from that membership. Now, with all of this, one author summarizes it by saying this, quote, In the New Testament, there is no such person as a Christian who is not a church member. In the New Testament, no such person as a Christian who is not a church member. He says there is no spiritual drifting in the Bible. All right. But why is the process for church membership then not more explicit in the New Testament? If it's all the stuff I've just said, and it is, and by the way, and more, there's more that could be added to that, but it's all of that and more. If it is all of that, if the Bible does teach quite clearly the necessity of being committed together and joined together in membership in the church, then why is the process for that not more explicit in the Bible? Why isn't there some place in the Bible where it says, verily, they ask for a raise of hands to indicate their intention to join? Or why isn't there some place where it says, behold, 
just using some King James for you. Verily and behold. Behold, as many as desired membership filled out an application and met with the elders to confirm their eligibility. Why don't you find something explicit like that? Well, that's because even though the function of membership is thoroughly biblical, I say in your outline, the form of membership is extra biblical. The function is thoroughly biblical. The fact that it's supposed to happen that this function of membership and uniting together and committing together, that's thoroughly biblical. Now, how does it take place? How is it supposed to happen? That's what I mean by the form. And the form is extra biblical. As one surveys the New Testament, he finds that it's filled with directives regarding the functions that we're to perform. Things like membership and discipline and evangelizing and baptizing and so on. But you also find the New Testament short on specifics regarding the forms that are necessary to carry those out. So here's an example. The Bible says this, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, look at that passage. And as you look at that passage, there are a couple of commands, directives, functions that the Bible is saying that we need to do. One is... Stated positively, meet together. Don't give up meeting together. So it's saying, meet together. And it's also saying, encourage. You've got those two things, meet together and encourage. And so while that tells us what we are to do, meet regularly and encourage one another, notice it does not tell us how we're to do that. So for instance, we're not told when to meet in that passage, how often to meet or where, what the order of service should be when we get together. We're given illustrations of these in the New Testament, but it's impossible to derive universal ways of doing this, universal forms to carry out those functions. In fact, with regard to the forms, the methods in the New Testament, here's what we find. That the functions, the directives, encourage, meet together, evangelize, those kinds of things, they are most often given without any particular form way of doing it specified. And secondly, the forms that are given, the methods that are given, the ways that are given are often partial and they're incomplete. So here's an example. Acts chapter 5 says this, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So here we're told that the apostles... We're teaching. That's a function. That's something they were carrying out. And they were doing it in a particular way, from house to house. That's the form. So we are given a form here, a way, a method. They were teaching from house to house. But notice, we're not told whether they taught in every house or just some, whether they taught both believers and unbelievers, whether they were inside or outside the house, whether the neighbors were invited, and on it goes. And so the methods, the forms that are given in the New Testament are often partial and incomplete. And here's another thing. The forms, the methodologies, the ways things are done for the very same function often vary from one context to another. In that same verse, we're told that the apostles, in addition to teaching from house to house, also taught, notice it says, in the temple courts. 
So they had this function to carry out teaching. They did it using a number of forms, house to house, temple courts. Given that fact, you cannot absolutize methodology. The Bible does not absolutize the way you do stuff. It tells you what to do, and you have to develop ways to carry it out. And that's because those ways, those methods, are often not described. When they are described, they're often incomplete, and they are changing even in the time of the New Testament. So we have to come up with forms, ways, methods to carry out what the Bible requires, and that's true for membership. The ways we do something may often be extra-biblical. Extra-biblical means just outside the Bible. But they can never be unbiblical, which means contrary to the Bible. Now, we had words displayed on a screen for our singing this morning. Many churches use printed books, hymnals for that. But you know the early church did not use hymn books, and obviously they did not use projectors. So what is that? That's extra biblical. It's outside the Bible, but it's not unbiblical, contrary to the Bible, because they're consistent with what the Bible requires, namely that we gather. When we gather for worship, we sing together. And so we've come up with ways to do that. With regard to membership, we get caught up on how we join. And we say, well, I don't see that. I don't see in the Bible that you're to raise your hand or fill out a card or any of that. Therefore, you're just giving me some stuff you made up. No, friend, I did not make up membership. Yes, we do have a particular way you do membership. It can be done a dozen other ways. But the point is it's got to be done. And with regard to membership, we get caught up on how we join. Rather than that, we are to join. And then we say, since we don't see that particular method in the Bible, then the whole thing is unnecessary. Now, why doesn't the Bible describe in detail how people become members of the church? Here's the simple answer. There was only one way in the New Testament to become a member of the church, the local church, and it was baptism. You joined, committed, became united to a local church in New Testament times when you were baptized. When you were baptized, you became a member of that church. Well, why isn't that the only method we have today then? Why have we had to come up with extra-biblical and fill out an application, sign a card, whatever. Well, it's because we have two factors that are present in our day that did not exist during the first century, and so they require that we have some method in addition to baptism for determining membership. And those two factors are these. Multiplication and mobility. Multiplication and and mobility. By multiplication, I mean the increase in individual churches in a given geographic area. You see, guys, in the time of the New Testament, there was most often only one church in a city. 
That's why the letters of the New Testament to churches could say to the church at Ephesus, to the church in Philippi. There was one church. So there was most often only one church in a city. Therefore, there was no need to identify with a specific church since it was, in effect, the only game in town. (laughs) Upon baptism, one became a member of that church, which was the church. And in addition, even if in a given locality there was more than one church, then the second factor comes into play, namely mobility. And a lack of mobility did not allow one to go from one to the other. So the practice of church hopping was completely unknown in the first century. Completely unknown. Today we have multiple churches in a city and the ability to get to those. So what it means is someone like many of you, could have been baptized years ago. But now you're leaving the church for whatever reasons. You've moved down this way. They've departed theologically or philosophically, whatever the reasons are. You're leaving that. You've already been baptized. But now you're looking to unite to another church. Well, now there needs to be something. You're not going to get baptized again. If you want that, we can talk about it. No, we can't. You're not getting baptized again. Baptism's already happened. So now what? We need some way for you to join our church. It was something they didn't have in New Testament times. And so we've come up with a way, frankly, fairly easy, straightforward for you to do that. A one-page application that you fill out. And those are available at the desk in the lobby. Don't knock anybody down as you're leaving today. But there should be several of you going to get those and filling them out and turning them in. And in New Testament times, there was no such thing as an unchurched Christian. When one was baptized, and that means immersed in water, after making a definite decision to follow Christ, not infant baptism. So if you have never been baptized that is immersed in water to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then you've never been baptized as the Bible describes. But when that happened, he or she was united with the particular local church in his area. The modern practice of church membership is therefore nothing more, now please hear this, it's nothing more than commitment to serve in a particular local church. Membership is but a synonym for commitment to a local church. And here the form that we've come up with is literally a one-page form. And you meet briefly with a few from our leadership team, and then you've seen us engage in the practice of folks who have done that. We bring up front at the end of a worship service, we introduce them, and our church body votes on bringing them into membership. If someone has never been baptized, that's the means through which they would join this church. By getting baptized here and publicly saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm uniting with this church body. Now, some of you are in the pipeline for membership. Some of you have filled out the application. Even next week, I believe we'll have at least one family coming to join. So if over the next few weeks you see families coming and joining... They're not because I beat them over the head today and they decided to 
Some are already in the pipeline. Some of you have already told me that the dog ate your first <laughs> application and you had to get another one. I'm not making that up. <laughs> and so you got another one and you're in the process of filling that out. And let me just let me just encourage you. Fill the thing out. Turn it in. It's the beginning of 2020. Let's move together as one, as God's church, to carry out his work as members here. If this is the place that God has for you, then let's commit together to do that. If it's not the place that God has for you. And by the way, if you don't know that after, say, six months, maximum a year, then there's something wrong with us that you aren't comfortable with. Because you come week after week for six months or a year, you get the deal. This is what we're about. So make a decision. I had one guy say to me years ago, mocking the idea of church membership. And he said, quote, what am I going to do at the judgment without my membership card? In other words, Jesus isn't going to ask me, was I a member of a church? Well, don't be so sure, okay? It's not a matter of heaven or hell. I'm not saying you're going to go to hell if you don't join a local church. I'm not saying that. You're not saved by the church. But saved people are to, in obedience to Christ and what the Bible says, are to commit to and be united in and participate in the work of a local church. And Jesus will ask you about that. Did you use what I gave you for the purpose for which I gave it? To advance the cause of my mission through my church. Now, I admit that part of the reason that we have a decent number of folks who attend our church and have not united in membership, part of the reason for that is when I do our newcomer's orientation... At the end of that, for years, it's been my habit to say, okay, the ball is in your court. I'm not going to come and say anything to you about that. So I'm going to, I'm modifying that going forward. At the end of the newcomer's orientation, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to say, we're going to give you some time. We'll give you a reasonable amount of time. If you have not decided to join our church after six months, but you're still coming, I'm going to contact you. Are there any questions I can answer? And after a year, if you've still not done that, then I'm going to strongly suggest you probably are not comfortable at this church. There's something holding you back. Let's find another place for you. I mean that. That's not because I'm mad at you. It's because apparently this is not the place. And it's okay with me if this is not the place. But I want you to have the place. More importantly, God does. So the church is comprised of God's people. Now, you see the rest of the outline there? You'll be glad to know we'll continue that next week. We're going to bow, but in all seriousness, I ask you to listen attentively. I thank you for doing that. Now I ask you to act upon what you have heard. Commit yourself to the Lord's work here if this is the place that God has for you. And that means for some of you getting baptized, 
We have a one-page baptism application. For some of you, it means filling out the one-page membership application. Those are both available at the desk in the lobby. Get those, fill them out, turn them in, and we'll go from there. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time to consider these matters of your church and our commitment to it, our participation in it. Lord, I pray that we've been able to dispel some false notions that many have understandably carried with them because they have not been taught and have not thought about the difference between the explicit biblical commands that you give us and the varied ways that you've given us responsibility for to carry those out. That you've told us the functions but not the forms. You've told us what to do but not explicitly how to do it. Lord, you've made very clear in your word that membership is a necessary function for your people. It's something we are supposed to do. It's something that's absolutely necessary for us to do in our Christian walk and as we serve you in your mission. Lord, you've, we've got given a particular way of doing that here. Let us not confuse those. Let us get over those humps, as it were, so that we can unite together, join together, commit together, and then carry out your work together. And so I ask you, Lord, to work on each heart. For us to, in these now remaining weeks of this series, to think about where we are in relation to the work that you're carrying out in your church. Have we committed ourselves? And then having committed ourselves, are we committed? Having become members, are we committed, faithful members? Help us as we discuss those things. Lord, not to build anything here for us, but to do all of this for you, the Lord of the church. We thank you for teaching us these principles through your word, and we'll give you the praise for all that you accomplish through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.